0: beautiful night, huh? Did you notice? There's something about the how the beauty of nature, the moon and the clouds can bring the mind into kind of space and quietness sometimes. It's just lovely. So tonight I want to talk about seclusion. The word in Pali is weweka, And seclusion um, First, when we think about it, when I think about it, we tend to think about it in terms of seclusion from other people. Kind of life or periods of solitude, periods of being alone. And this is a really um, important, respected, even vital part of so many spiritual traditions, isn't it? Times of um, renunciation, of solitude, of aloneness, So I wanted to talk a bit about just some reflections on that, the value of it, why we would do it, why it's so helpful. But also in um, the way the Buddha talks about it in the teachings, seclusion isn't only about being secluded from other people. There's one quotation from a sutta where someone's asking the Buddha, Do you know, sir and then these three words together, emancipation, release, seclusion for beings. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great translator, his note says those are three designations for nibbana. Emancipation, release, seclusion for beings, that word riweka. So in that way it's being used as seclusion from dukkha, seclusion from the kalesha from greed, hatred, delusion. So this idea of seclusion actually has a lot of different depths to it. So I just want to give a few reflections about it. Just on the first level, which is really quite profound, the sense of spending some periods of time, and some people choose their whole life, secluded uh, first from other people a life of uh, being a recluse or a hermit. And in a small way, that's what we're all doing here. This form of intensive silent practice is really coming from a life of seclusion. And even though you may feel like you're more with people here than you ever are in your life, you know, 80 of you all jammed together all the time. It's like, please, seclusion, what do you mean? But at least hope to God you're silent. And that's a little bit moving in that direction. But it's a huge part. Of traditions, of spiritual traditions, you know, Jesus in the wilderness, the early Christian uh, mystics. Recent, a few years ago, I was with a friend, we were uh, Swiss friend, we were traveling in southern France, and we went to visit in the Dordogne, this area, kind of southwest France, two or three um, Tibetan monasteries that he was, he he knew, he was friends with some of the people who ran them. Started two of them were under the auspices of the Karmapa and one was another Dzogchen Monastery. What was interesting is that, you know, being not in the Tibetan tradition, I wasn't really aware of these. And we get to one of them and it's, although it's Tibetan, all the people there were not Tibetan. Some were monks and nuns, some were lay people, but all different cultures, mostly Westerners, Europeans uh, and other Westerners. But anyway, we're not all Tibetans. So there's one of them. They had just begun three-year, three-month, and three-day retreats. You know, you've heard of that in the Tibetan tradition, right? It makes our three-month retreats seem like nothing. Okay, they had just begun one. In a separate little enclave, there were four enclaves. Over 100 people had just started. Now, in one of the enclaves, it was their first three-year retreat. In the other enclave, it was their second. The others, it was their third. The others, it was their fourth. So this is just quietly going on, you know, in France. All these hundred people on these three-month, three-year and three-day retreats, they're fourth one in a row. Can you imagine? They come out, earn a little money, and go back in again. So just to say this is a tradition that's still alive, you know, in the world today, um, not only back in the ancient times, so how, how does this serve our aspiration for awakening in this practice? I mean, whether we choose to be even more of a secluded person or if our practice is really to awaken in daily life, here we are practicing a form of some kind of renunciation and seclusion, right? And so how, how can that be helpful? I'm going to read a few... Things. One from Thomas Merton. You know who Thomas Merton was—the American Trappist monk who was <clears throat> always drawn to being a hermit, a mystic, 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 but always not being allowed to go be a real hermit. You know, he's always being called back by his superiors. So this is a, a, about a, 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 not what he exactly said, but an encapsulation of something where he's saying. The search for solitude, talking about the desert fathers, the early Christian desert fathers who went off into the desert completely alone in Egypt for practice. The search for solitude is a journey to discover the inner self. The monks fled to the desert to become ordinary. If they had gone there to be extraordinary, this would have meant taking the world with them as a standard for comparison. I like that. Just that simple, not I'm a special person, but just more and more ordinary. But then, still, why do we need, at times, to flee the world, to get away from the world, to discover how truly ordinary we are? You think, I already know I'm really ordinary. But you don't really want to be ordinary. You want to be extraordinary. How can we be happy to be just ordinary? Anyway, why do we need to get away and Thich Nhat Hanh, now this is Thich Nhat Hanh talking about it, why we would take time away from all the activity, because it's not just this first form of seclusion called kaya miweka, or seclusion of body. And so we first think of it as, again, being separate from people, because we get so caught up. But it's also being uh, removed from so much sense-door activity, which we've talked about some. So, Tignan Han's talking about both of these. He says, We have lost our taste for silence. We do not know how to be with ourselves without something else to accompany us. He says, A book, a telephone, you can tell how old this is. I would say, With our iPhone, with our tablets, with our computers. Think about it. You don't have to think very long, do you? Go to a restaurant. How many people can sit there? Never mind if they're alone, even when they're together sitting there on, the, on their phones. Have you ever noticed that? Or we were somewhere somewhere recently and someone going to a restaurant and they were young kids and they looked like they were on a date and they're all sitting there. <laughs> and they're like, you know, in pairs. <laughs> but really to be alone without some, something to accompany us. He says the first, Thich han again, the first thing for us to do is to return to ourselves in order to recover ourselves, to be our best, to reorganize our lives so that we do not allow society to colonize us. I actually love that line. He uses it in a few places. We don't even recognize how society and the norms around are colonizing us till we take some time away from other people, from the flood. And this is the third part I want to read from Ajahn Shah. He talks about the flood of sensuality. I mean, just the flood of sense experience that we experience throughout our days in our daily life, right? We've talked about this, but I just like the way he says, he says, sunk, we are sunk in sights, in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations, just sunk in it. Sunk because we look at externals and we don't look inwardly. He says, it's like being a prisoner. Somebody else has control over you. When they tell you to sit, you have to sit. To walk, you have to walk. So being imprisoned by the senses is the same as that. No matter how hard you try, you can't shake it off. Do you get a sense of that or does it bring up a kind of resistance? No, no, no. I'm not sunk in senses. I mean, here, that's part of what we're doing. We're actually setting up conditions to allow us to pull out of this flood, this flood of sensuality, To not because it's bad, but because there's so much going on, as they both, all these guys say, we don't have a chance to just stop and look inwardly and even see what's true, right? What's going on for us. And so... The sense of Kaya We Weka isn't only about pulling away some space from other people, but about all, you know, the expectations and all the sense experience that we're just rolling in day in and day out. I don't know if you ever notice, I notice myself, more and more in the last few years, whatever I've read or watched on TV or read on the computer. And it can be something, you know, something just stupid and passing the time, or something really useful. It doesn't really matter what it is. But when I get quiet, when I sit, or if I'm just going to bed, or just sitting quietly, whatever that was is just rolling around in my mind, right? In my heart, in my mind, if it was some emotions. like I really don't like watching big emotional movies anymore, because like, who needs some fake emotions? There's enough, you know, going on in life. It's bad enough, I need to like go suffer over somebody who never existed and they lost this other person and blah, 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 (laughs) give me a break. But I go to bed and that's what's like rolling around in my mind, I think, why am I doing this? (laughs) So we just need to get a little bit quiet to see this. And so I don't wanna be quiet and see that, thank you very much, but this is what's just going on when we're sunk in this flood of sensuality to to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next thing we don't have a chance to even see what the effect is. So this kaya viveka is uh, pulling out of being around people a lot, but also out of this just overwhelming flood of sense experience. But I, I hope you know when I say this and what we've talked about all along, I'm not, the Buddha wasn't saying that sense experience is like a bad thing. It's life, it's what's happening he just said, let's set up some conditions so we can actually know what's happening instead of just being swept up with the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And when he, when he says we're like uh, imprisoned by our sense experience, I think, I think what he really means is we're, we're imprisoned by our uh, habitual reactions which marries us to the sense experience, which we don't recognize. Now this we've talked about. I don't need to go into it a lot. You've seen in the early days of retreat how maybe the first couple of days are nice and then it may start to get like a little more awkward or maybe it goes the other way. But there's a sense of, you know, having to fit into the schedule and the things that you miss and the things that you want and that noise and, you know, you're walking and there's a noise and it's unpleasant and I don't want to walk anymore and my body hurts and we just, you know, the body hurts so you stop. It feels good so you eat more. You're having a nice sitting so you keep sitting. It starts to hurt, you get up. And we just are are run by the reactions of mind to sense experience liking it, not liking it, making up a story, what that means about me, how can I fix it? You don't you know if you even remember the first few days where you spend time, maybe you don't, maybe you're past all this, where you, you spend time getting your little nest and figuring out your little schedule, right? When am I gonna eat? When am I gonna shower? What works for me? What are these other people? I don't know if I wanna sit here. I don't like those people. Let me find the right place, you know? And it takes up a lot of, again, maybe you're past it, but it takes up a, a lot of mental energy. When I first, even now, when I first come to, to sit myself in a new place, it's like, gotta suss it out, gotta figure it out. After a couple of days, you settle down, you got your drift going. But those first two days are kind of great to pay attention to because that's the mind imprisoned by reactions to sense experience and wanting to get it all copacetic so we don't have to deal with that anymore. But it's not that sense experience is bad. It's just when we're sunk in the flood, we don't have the chance to even see what's happening. There's just too much. So this kaya we wake is, as you've seen, as... There's still plenty of sense experience going on, right? We're not unconscious. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, let us not forget, (laughs) is still happening every moment. You might think, what? We're still in the flood of sensuality, aren't we? Maybe, but even so, hasn't, and now now be real about this. Don't just go, no, in your mind. Haven't you noticed some more space and some quieting down in the mind, in the thoughts, just even a little at various moments. Like all like a, you know, all the, the movies and stuff you've seen, maybe, you know, hope to God you're not having to rerun them now. Your mind is running on, you know, what's for lunch, what's for dinner, what the person upstairs is doing, but, but it's not the same. There's more space. There's more space. It starts to quiet down and we're starting to see a bit the patterns, aren't we? Sometimes, yes, say yes. <laughs> Sometimes, but there's still a huge amount going on. So the other aspect of Kaya Weweka, what I want to talk about a little, is um, restraint at the sense doors, and I want to talk about this especially because when we, in terms of mm, one of the instructions we've been often we've been giving lots of instructions, but a kind of attitude we've been often pointing to is the sense of of awareness can meet whatever's arising, right? Not needing to choose that one thing isn't better than another thing, right? You've picked up that we've been saying that. This doesn't sound completely unfamiliar. (laughs) Just checking, you know, (laughs) you never know. And so from that point of view, now here I am coming and saying restraint at the sense doors can be really supportive for clear seeing. And I go, well, what the heck? You just said whatever's going on. So this is where we can look and see what is skillful practice. How we can use particular techniques to support our deepening in awareness and wisdom. And it all comes down, of course, to what's the motivation. That was that this morning when James did intention as instructions. It's like a year ago, isn't it? When the, the sense of checking what's the motivation. So restraint at the sense doors. What we mean by this in terms of practice is a kind of renunciation. But renunciation as we often think about it in our culture here we have so much can come together with a certain negativity. Maybe it's too strong, maybe not. But as the Buddha said before he was awakened he would hear about renunciation and how good it was he would say but, but my heart did not leap up. At the thought of renunciation, <laughs> it felt like a sheer drop off. That's a quotation from one of the suttas because I didn't understand the benefits of it. So, when we think of renunciation as an aversive cutting off, that's not renunciation. That's guess what? That's aversion. So, restraint at the sense doors. It really means, okay, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, we're not saying it's bad to see and hear and smell and taste and touch, but we just restrain, become a little more inward. For example, seeing, a good example. The sense of restraint at the sense doors would be just kind of renouncing that impulse to just be looking around all the time. Not just a little bit. You know how you're walking and you're looking and you're thinking and you know, and you can pretty much tell now when someone's really a little bit spaced out because you know, when we're spaced out, looking is a, a way, kind of the energy is just going out through the eyes. You say, so what? You can be aware of it. You can, sometimes. But restraint at the center in terms of support for the mind at peace, support for a heart that's more present, is to check it out. Restraint doesn't mean refusing to look. It means bringing, as Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I think one of us mentioned, he was this great Thai forest, medi- forest monk meditation teacher. He talked about restraint at the sense door simply meaning bringing in, he would put together sati, mindfulness, and panya wisdom. And he would talk about bringing sati panya to the point of sense contact. So say restraint at the eye door. The first would be just to have a sense of renunciation. am just Gonna maybe not look around so much, not out of aversion, but to see. Does this help me be more present? And then Satipanya at the eye door. <coughs> 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 Excuse me. Would simply be being present and noticing what happens with eye contact. So. Some people have mentioned to me after over years of practice, um, you know, we think, well, I, I shouldn't look around and that's just kind of a should and you get re- reactive and we get all tight and then we don't look around. And I have a friend who thought of restraint at the eye door. He walked around blindfolded for a couple of days on retreat. That's not really it. <laughs> that's not, you can walk around blindfolded and be just filled with, you know, aversion and greed and not see it. But noticing... If we aren't looking around all the time, then it's easier to be present when seeing really kind of calls the attention, and noticing what happens when we go off into looking around. And uh, a friend, two examples. A friend told me some years ago she was doing retreats. She'd been practicing a lot. She was doing a long retreat on Maui, so it's beautiful. You know, it's up high, so you can look out. There's a beautiful view of the ocean and all. And she said when she first went, whenever she was doing walking meditation, always outside, she was always looking at the view, almost like, I have to look, you know, you should look. Here I am on Maui, you have to, you know, enjoy the view. And then she just started noticing all that lack of restraint at the eye door was just feeding craving. She was getting more and more um, unsettled, agitated. So then out of um, wisdom... And renunciation comes from wisdom and it's a renouncing of um, experience that brings us into more agitation and suffering. She said, she just started walking along the side of a building and not looking up, not out of tightness, but, and it brought ease. It brought happiness. It brought open space to her heart. And later people would say to her, what's the matter with you? You're in Maui and you're not even looking up. And she said, because it was so much easier, so much peace so that's the wisdom of renunciation and restraint at a sense store. But you could do the same thing, and it could be from aversion. Another example, another story. of friends quite a long time ago, they opened a retreat center. Well, I'm going to say where it is, you'll know who it is. But anyway, opened a retreat center in Switzerland, and again, an even more beautiful spot with lakes and mountains right outside the front. You can't not look. You can't. And the friend, when the year that they first opened it, I, I teach there every year, it was really funny because the friend, one of the people who was sort of running, said, everyone's just sitting outside, just staring at the lake and the mountains, staring at the lake and the mountains. they got to get it. He's like, I want to put up a big wall, you know, so they can't look up like <laughs> in the mountains. <laughs> It was really funny. I was cracking up. It's like, so, in kind of a sense of, no, it's bad, don't look, don't look, you know. That's not restraint, that's aversion, you know? It's not necessarily a helpful attitude that the beauty is bad. So, restraint at the sense stores is really about bringing mindfulness wisdom to the point of contact, whether it's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, thinking, when we can, and noticing the effect. You can see it with um, unpleasant experience when the Buddha talks about what's the cause for ill will as a hindrance to keep growing. He says, he says, unwise attention to the repugnance of an object, to the whatever it is that's creating, bringing up ill will in your mind. You keep on focusing on that thing. Have you ever noticed Ute Janiya always gives the example, if you're really annoyed at someone and you keep on looking at them, what happens to the annoyance, right? Is it really, you know, it feeds it, doesn't it? You think, oh, and you look at them, oh, (laughs) "Oh, oh, oh, oh." (laughs) you know? Okay, (laughs) that's lack of restraint at the eye door and no satipanya at the eye door, and that keeps on feeding the ill will, Right? So the restraint. you know what, let me not look. It might be a little hard, really feel like a renunciation at first because you just want to look because you want to suffer more. Let me look and get really worked up. Let me look. and You know, it just turns into a cycle. So the, the wisdom may come in and just say, okay, just don't look. Just try not to look. You want to look, but you don't. That's restraint. And noticing how over time <coughs> of the not looking, the heart and mind comes back to peace. It comes back to ease. And in this case, restraint, renunciation is not a giving up of something wonderful. It's a choice for our happiness and well-being, for greater understanding. So that's what I mean by restraint at the sense doors is really fed by what's the motivation and what's the effect. And not saying that sense experience is bad at all. Even from the Buddha, a very short little couplet. He said, a bhikkhu keeps her eyes from wandering restlessly with desire and her ears are deaf to chatter and gossip. She has no longing for new sweets to taste nor has any desire to possess things in the world as her own. Okay, that's pretty high what he's saying. So it's a strong statement. But the next line is, where she is in contact with sense impressions, she does not become sorrowful or sad. She should not begin to wish for some other kind of life or tremble when confronted with fearful things. So, in other words, how I read that is, you say, you know, don't let your eyes and mind run restlessly with desire. But on the other hand, when you meet experience, don't tremble or wish it were different or be sad. This just what it is. Both of these are supportive. And so our our subtlety of practice, our flexibility of mind, of skillful means, is seeing, you know, in this terms of kaya we wake, seclusion from the flood of sensuality and from people, from how is it supporting a more clear seeing of just what's going on. How is it supportive of um, inward looking and more, more peace, more ease, less reactivity in mind and heart over time? And we make choices based on that. This is Thich Nhat Hanh again. He talks about how, um, you know, we like to have our windows open, but if we leave our windows open all the time, He's talking about our sense doors. Really, everything is coming in and just disturbing us. It's just too much. So he says, Sometimes a beginning meditator may want to leave the city and go off to the countryside to help close those windows that would trouble his spirit if left open. There he or she can become one with the quiet forest, rediscover and restore herself. The fresh and silent woods help you remain in awareness. Yet when awareness is well-rooted, when it can be maintained without faltering, then you may wish to return to the city and be there less troubled. But before you reach this point, you must be very careful, nourishing your awareness moment by moment, choosing the surroundings and sustenance that assist you the most. So it's really, just as the Buddha is very pragmatic, and for many of I would say for most of us, unless you're extremely unusual, seclusion of body and seclusion from a lot of interaction and seclusion from this flood of sensuality is extremely helpful and important. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> to help support a clearer seeing, understanding and greater peace. And you may start to notice, hopefully you have, as the, the flood of sensuality and reactivity in the mind, it starts to slow down, doesn't it? Sometimes it's just a trickle. There's moments when there's not much at all. There's moments when there's satipanya at your sense, sense door contact, and there's really just nothing created around it. Silence, space. That's really what I was alluding to, what I was feeling when I walked up and there's ah, the moon that was sense contact it was seeing it was pleasant but then the mind didn't have to do anything else about it ah a sense of peace we can notice that more and so this space this silence this more balanced awareness does grow as we give ourselves the space to explore to renounce to have some restraint but there's always a but you may have noticed it's not like one-way traffic. And so as the flood of our habitual thinking and reaction and sense experiences begins to quiet down and there is more space and less reactivity in the mind, sometimes that actually leaves space, not just for the hindrances, but really for even more unexpected wild stuff to come up and be seen. Have any of you noticed that at all? I wanna read a story from one of the Desert Fathers. So these are the, the, the early Desert Fathers, early Christians in the, in the early centuries after Jesus. Saint Antony of Egypt was the most famous of the Desert Fathers. His life inspired thousands to leave their homes and follow him. So he was from a really rich family. He heard the words of Jesus that you should sell all you have and give to the poor, and he actually believed it and did it and went off way, way, way out into the desert. So finally, he moved to a deserted fort way 50 miles south of Memphis in Egypt on the east bank of the Nile he lived alone without seeing a human face for over 20 years, being brought supplies of bread and water every six months. Sometimes the friends who brought these supplies would hear terrifying shrieks and groans from behind the locked doors. Eventually they could stand this no longer and broke down the doors, expecting to release a wasted and emaciated maniac. However, Antony emerged healthy, sane, balanced, and full of advice on how to, leave, how to lead an ascetic life. He went to Alexandria to support the Christians who were being persecuted there and spent the rest of his life alternating between retreats into solitude and emerging to help and advise others. And really, the more I read this sense of the retreat into solitude, is balanced by the emergence to support and help others. But the point I was making now is this being visited by what you could call demons is a really, unfortunately I'm afraid, pretty inescapable part of our kind of retreat from daily life into what comes up in our mind and heart as it becomes more quiet. So it's not that something is going wrong. It sure feels like something is going wrong because we hate this stuff, but that may be the reason we didn't really want to go into solitude in the first place. Seriously, you know? So the demons are gonna come up, shrieks and groans of St. Anthony, but here it can be, and it it could be really, you know, huge self-hatred, giant fear, or patterns of mind, of self-judgment, or guilt, or greed, or you know what your ones are by now. And you know, deep down, you probably know them all. That's one thing. All these years of practice, they come up in different, you know, kind of different uh, formations together. But mostly, we get the same old ones. The ones that come up now, oh yeah, I thought I worked through that one. 15 years ago, hello, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let him in. It comes up in a slightly different way. Rage, guilt, pride, worthlessness, the shrieks and groans of St. Anthony. That's part of it all. That's part of it all. And often we can miss it because it may manifest in content-wise. The content is all about how we're relating to the practice. It isn't good enough, it isn't deep enough, or, you know, it's too filled with this, or it's not enough that, or Whatever and because we're we're focusing on that content we miss the fact oh here's that demon of total worthlessness here's that demon of fear here's that demon of pride whatever it is and just knowing the the seclusion may give space for it to come up but it's also allowing the mind and heart to grow in wisdom and depth and steadiness of of awareness, satipanya, so that that's actually the tool and the refuge that we bring to meet the demons. Instead of thinking we're gonna get rid of it by jumping to another sense pleasure, which is what we can do in our life, never to quite feel it, here it's like, oh no, I really need to get on the computer, like right now. (laughs) (laughs) Ever notice that? Suddenly it's so important. We go, okay, you know, just, I got to talk to someone right now. No, just sit with it and see what's happening. See what's happening. But this is why it takes so much courage to come into a period of seclusion like this, seclusion from our life, seclusion from our friends, seclusion from so much sense pleasure. It takes, I think, enormous courage. You know, some days more than others. Some days it's like, oh, this is great. I could do it forever. But the next day is another story. And just to respect that in yourselves, in each other, you know. And and one of the reasons we want to keep you know a sense of supporting each other's seclusion of really not interacting with each other because you never know what's going on with another person. We don't even know what's going on with ourselves half the time, right? So whatever we think's going on with the other person is pretty much going to be projection. And so just leave them alone. It's this great gift we give one another to meet our demons in our own way, on our own term, with the support of our own mindfulness wisdom. So, oy, that's Kaya Weka. The next is Chitta Weka, which is seclusion of mind, a friend of mine. I have Jay. I don't know if that's Joseph. I don't know who it was. It says, Kaya Weweka means no body bothers you. And Chita Weweka means your mind doesn't bother you. <laughs> Just kind of shorthand, <laughs> but I like that. So Chita Uweka, seclusion of mind, really means the mind is secluded from the hindrances. It's, it used, sometimes it's taken as, as meaning deep states of absorption, which is one Chita Up, but I want to talk about it not only as deep states of absorption. But it's when um, the mind is... um, It's not being caught in kalesa, greed, hatred, delusion, kalesa, arising as a reaction to sense pleasures, as a reaction to experience. So one... I'm going to have to edit as I'm going along here. So Chittu Iwaka, in states of what you would call deep absorption, where the mind is really collected on one experience, you know, states of jhana. One of the reasons, or main reason, it's so um, onward leading, the mind feels so pure, is because when the mind is so absorbed, there's like no space for the khalashas to get in. You know, they just don't even come in. It's not like you're fighting them off. They just don't come up, or it starts to come up, and the mind goes, no, I don't think so, and goes back. Well, I mean, who wouldn't like that? It's nice, the sense of, touching what the purity of mind and heart can feel like in a moment. It's not steady state, it's not enlightenment, it doesn't last, it's conditional. But to just feel that is an expression of chitta viveka But another way I want to talk about chitta viveka is the silence of the non-reactive mind, but not the silence of nothing happening. So, and this is again more on the side of as uh, our mind quiets and as the mindfulness awareness is getting a bit more steady. And it is getting a bit more steady, right? In spurts. But there's times when it's more steady, when it's moving with its own <laughs> momentum. It's not so much effort. And it can really be with different sense experiences, the sixth sense experiences coming and going. Have you had moments like that, steady times like that? So in the times when it's getting more and more steady, the awareness, and the chatter is quieting down, it can still be thoughts and stuff. This silence of the non-reactive mind is we start to experience, again like when I was looking at the moon, experience of sense experience, thought, whatever. The mind just is quiet with space around, doesn't need to create anything around that experience. And it's also a real experience of peace, of purity, that maybe we don't often notice. There's a word in Pali, Atamayata. Jajan Dasa, again, in some of his writings, he said, he was towards the end of his life, he said, this is the ultimate Buddhist concept, Atamayata which sort of means not being made up of this or that. You could say it's the state of heart and mind of non-concocting. We mm-hmm. uh, just experience what's arising without concocting anything around it. And I love the word concocting because it has that sense of just making something up out of nothing, on and on and on. Do you have any sense what I mean? This atamayatana, the, the, the highest peace, highest peace of mind and heart would be, you know, the seclusion um, from the reactions of greed, hatred, and delusion and they don't arise at all. But in this citta weka of non-concocting, we can start to explore the sense experience and both when the mind is not concocting and when it does concoct, <laughs> how and what that leads to. And this is where we can begin to experience citta, Weweka. I read this from a Thai, uh, I think it was in the island, I read it somewhere else, but Longpo Dun, a Thai Ajahn, who was a disciple of Ajahn Mun. And this is his re-wording of the Four Noble Truths. But this is, for me, this is in terms of the mind, the citta Weweka, the mind that's free from concocting. The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering, the second noble truth. So something happens, a sight, a sound, and the mind goes out. It's a whole story, the cause of suffering. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering, the first noble truth. The mind, seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So this is that satipanya at the mind, or just watching, this concocting, how it comes up, how it leads to trouble, how it drops away. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. Do you get that, this sense of, and this isn't rocket science to notice, is it? We're not talking incredible subtlety here about the mind going out and making trouble. No? <laughs> just very simple, the difference. Okay, this is the example I wrote down. Just walking. There's a cold wind blowing. So there's a sense of coldness and the perception of wind. It's unpleasant. The mind just, got, uh the mind going out to satisfy, I don't like this. It's cold. I feel disgruntled. Why is it cold like this? There's not enough good walking places here at Spirit Rock inside, and I can't walk inside with my shoes on because I need to walk in my shoes, and yada, 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 right? That's the mind going out, fueled by, it's not rocket science, aversion or greed, creating a whole story, okay? The mind of non-concocting, chitta walking, cold wind, coolness, Unpleasant. Bas. The mind just doesn't do anything with it. That's citta viveka. Now what is the thing is truly normal and natural. It's not an incredible esoteric state that we create. But by bringing satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, just to watching. It's the same thing, satipanya at the mind door. Watching the mind that concocts, and the mind that doesn't. And just seeing the effect of each. Just keep on noticing, keep on watching with awareness. The wisdom comes in by itself. But what I'd like to point to, and this is from Buddha Dasa also, he talks about recognize those moments, the translation Santikaro uses of shunyata is voidness, but recognize those moments, I would say, of just the peace, the space of non-concoction. Because often they'll go, oh, that's nice, like looking at the moon. Oh, the moon, that's nice, it's so pretty, I feel so, ah, oh, it's nice. But I don't really recognize the quality in the mind that's, that's awake, present, alert, but there's just the space of not creating anything around it. So it can be really helpful to recognize, sort of Buddha Dassa says, generate a contentment, with this kind of emptiness at that moment there's no sense of anything particular no sense of self just generate a contentment with that recognizing first when it's happening instead of getting sunk again in the sense experience i use the moon but nature's one of the reasons i think that having retreats in lovely natural settings partly because we're just really privileged be able to be here, and most of the retreats I teach at are in some lovely settings, but some aren't. Like some places in Burma, not so pretty, but some are But the nature can be really supportive in this way for us, if we can recognize how it's working, to incline our hearts, our minds, toward being really present, but without any concocting of wanting or aversion or making up a story. I mean, we can also make up a story, don't get me wrong. We can make up a story about anything, and we do. But nature can be so helpful. So just give a couple examples. I know from your own experience people often mention this, but how we can consciously use it to recognize Chitta viweka the non-reactive, the stillness of the non-reactive mind-heart. Yesterday I went out to um, the Point Reyes seashore just by myself, just to take a walk and and walk to the ocean, be there quietly and walk back. And yes, there's much less sense bombardment than being, you know, doing errands or being at home on the computer. So there's a sense of peace and spacious in the environment. Yes, it was mostly pleasant sense experience. So it's a lot easier to talk about, you know, the non-reactive mind when it's pleasant and you're not being bombarded. I acknowledge all of that. But you can still get lost. But still, I was noticing, sitting at the seashore, the sense. You know, you get the sense of space from looking at the sky and the sea. But then you can notice that that's kind of like a metaphor for the space, internal space, in the mind and heart when the mind isn't fixating on something and reacting. And so, just just kind of tuning into that. Chitta Uweka, who the mind wasn't getting going off into wanting. It could do that too with pleasant. Oh, this is so nice. How can I have a vacation by the beach? How can I do this more? How can I live by... You know, you could go off that way. But when it's just, ah, this. Notice, not just this is nice, whatever. Notice that quality of vibrant, wakeful stillness, if you could put it that way, of the non-reactive mind and heart. That's chitta Uweka that isn't dependent on taking away sense experience. And it's easier to tune into and lovely when we're not too into craving, but it's certainly available as we begin to recognize no matter what's happening. So an alternative experience, also my experience, being in Burma, where I, again, was this, this year for several weeks, and I've been going there every year for quite some years. And those of you who've practiced in Burma, India, Asia, or have heard the endless stories about it, you know it's noisy. It's extremely noisy. And uh, often at night, the kind, there's just noise everywhere. There's not a sense of it should be quiet. I mean, even in meditation centers, you know, people will come by just walking, talking at the top of their voices as they come and go, and we're like, what? This is a meditation center. It should be quiet. That's <laughs> like something we made up, really. But... The noise I'm talking about, this was, you know, is the, you know, the loudspeakers that are in villages all around, and in any wedding or any whatever, they come on. It can be all day and all night. Sometimes I've been where it's day and night, like for three days and nights without stop. Loud, really loud. I mean, loud that if you walk right by it on the road, it it literally hurts your ears. This is just part of life there. Everyone has that. Like, one time we were staying in this village way out in the country, you know, and there's, like, wasn't even hardly any electricity. We had offered some solar panels. It was the only electricity. People have, you know, um, generators. So we're staying there. At 3.30 in the morning, that huge loudspeaker comes on with some dhamma talk in Burmese. And ap- <laughs> apparently, they do this every night. 3.30. And then at 4 across the river another one started. We're like... Oh. So we asked someone, why? Don't, doesn't it bother people? You know, not of getting up at 3.30. And they said, oh no, it's nice to lie in bed and listen to the Dharma. And we said, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's not my example of chitta-wueka. That's the opposite of chitta-wueka. But that kind of noise... And so I've noticed the last couple of years, you know, be there, be going to bed, and it starts, it's not every night, so, you know, you can't get regular, you never know. And it starts, it's like, whoa, this is really loud tonight. And the worst is when they start with karaoke, I can't tell you. But it starts really loud, and my mind will have a little, bit, oh. and then I've really noticed the last couple of years, it's like, okay. And it, the, the mind just doesn't do anything with it. I didn't believe it at first. You know, but now I don't even notice, like, someone was saying, to God, it was so loud, this. I'm like, oh, was it? <laughs> and it, it's just the, the, the same quality. It could be delusion. That's not Chitta Uweka. That's delusion. You don't notice what the heck's going on. That's not Chitta Uweka. You may feel at peace, but there's not quite <laughs> the aliveness, you know. <laughs> but this is more really, I could see it, the mind does nothing with it. And every now and then something particularly <laughs> whatever, reaches out and grabs, and the mind goes, Oh my God, if that goes on all night, I... Let it go. <laughs> Just let it go. And then to really see, okay, Chittu Uweka is really grows as our wisdom grows, as our practice with seeing this grows. The mind inclined towards the peace of non-concocting, because we're so much happier. This is really moving in the direction of the deepest... Seclusion, which is, you know, the ultimate seclusion from the Kalasha where they don't arise at all. Okay, that's down the road. But Chitta viveka is really something that we can experience little, big, moment to moment, with pleasant, with unpleasant, with neutral, with big experiences with little ones. And in a way, I would just would point us to just recognizing the quality of it. Oh, great, thank God, everything's okay. What, why is everything okay? Notice what the mind and heart feels like at that point, notice that wakefulness. I don't want to look too close because I might get caught up in aversion and wanting again, you know? <laughs> okay, at first that's like that, notice. But then you'll start to trust it. And you'll trust it more and more because this is really taking refuge in awareness, taking refuge in the peaceful mind, in the citta viveka, really to see that more and more. Rajan Jumnian, who is another Thai forest master. At some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is recognized as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away on its own, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions then there is no longer any personal doing. That's like an expression of more kind of the seclusion of mind and heart that's really emancipated, that's freed from the arising of Kalesa. But we can experience this in moments and just... One ceases to focus on particular content and all is recognized as mind and matter, arising and passing of its own. As Greg said the other night, it's just nature. We just give it back to nature. And we're nature too. And so, I think our koan in terms of how we relate to seclusion the choices we make in terms of solitude or in terms of seclusion from the sense doors or restraint at the sense doors, in terms of when the mind is balanced enough we can really explore citta-wakka without needing to shut, you know, the sense doors down, or when we need to support ourselves that way, is to recognize and trust more and more what the silence of the non-reactive mind feels like And to tune into the motivations when we try to restrain or shut something out. The motivation is from aversion or fear. Oh no, this is so peaceful. And that, if people start talking, if there's sound, that's going to wreck my peace. That's not chitta-wawaka. That is holding on to a state. So it's, this is Ramana Maharshi. So here's Ramana. Solitude is in the mind. A person might be in the midst of the world and yet maintain serenity. Such a one is in solitude. Another may stay in a remote forest and still be unable to control the mind. Such a one cannot be said to be in solitude. Those attached to desire are unable to experience solitude wherever they are whereas those who are not attached to desire are always in solitude, even when they are engaged in work and connection with people. The Buddha, in the same way, a sutta that many of you are probably familiar with, it's called the Elder Sutta, or this is Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, but the better way to live alone, where there's a a bhikkhu, who, as they come to the Buddha and say, there's an elder who only wants to be alone, and he says how wonderful it is to be alone. And he goes and talks to the elder Thera about it. The Buddha asked the monk Thera, then how do you live alone? And he replied, I live alone. No one else lives with me. I praise the practice of being alone. I go for alms alone, and I come back from the village alone. I sit in meditation alone. That is all. I am and so the Buddha said, this is Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, which is always, tends to be a little softer, I would say. It's obvious that you like the practice of living alone, and not saying that there's, that's bad, but that to see that that is a better way, a more wonderful way to be alone, the way of deep observation, to see that the past no longer exists and the future has not yet come and to dwell at ease in the present moment, free from desire. This is the same as Ramana Maharshi was saying. When a person lives in this way, free from desire, just sunk in the present moment, there's no hesitation in his heart. He abandons anxieties and regrets, abandons binding desires, and cuts the fetters which prevent him from being free. This is called the better way to live alone. There is no more wonderful way of being alone than this. So the kaya viwaka, the chitta viwaka, is in support of our experiencing that purity of heart and mind. The better way of being alone really secluded from craving, from the wanting, from the creating the sense of self, the concocting, this endless concocting sense of self out of every sense experience. And so our koan of what's supportive is really in service of moving in this direction of this citta uweka that then leads to this deepening sense of abandoning, clinging, and concocting sense of self rather than an idea. Of what it should look like. So, seclusion isn't just about being isolated. If that is leading to fear of people, resistance to noise, overreactivity to experience, then what's being fed? What's being fed is aversion and fear and wanting. If you're in the middle of the world, and your mind is getting more calm, less reactive, less concoction. What's being fed is wisdom and liberation. So that's what we look at. What's being fed? What's being starved when we make our choices? And I just I do want to say two things. One, the Buddha said, two things I never lost sight of while I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva. One is, Never to be lax in my effort. In other words, not push, 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 but never give up. Never give up. And the second, never to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. And that one I love, because it's so easy to do. Wow, this is so lovely. This is good enough. What more could I want? A little clinging, okay, so what? It's not really a problem. So, just to watch that, never settle for wholesome states of mind. And this, just end with one story about back to that sense of how the going off to live a life of real seclusion isn't to deny humanity or cut oneself off, but the wisdom that comes out of that really then, so often as with St. Anthony, expresses itself in. The natural, the natural expression of wisdom is compassion. So this is, it's from a review of a book about hermits, and I don't even know the name of the book because I just cut the review off a few years ago. But it's talking about, this part of the review, describing a visit to an Anglican convent where the, uh, the person who's writing the, writing the book meets a nun whose need for solitude had taken her to an abandoned cabin on a cliff way off somewhere in some remote place. Having repaired it, she lived there for 18 years, but not quite alone because people brought their troubles to her. However, rather than resisting that or feeling like they were intruding, she believed that the responsibility of the solitary one was, and these are in quotations, to stand at the intersection between the love of God and suffering humanity. So that's, to me, like a beautiful expression of the wisdom of the really secluded heart and mind, that it manifests as compassion. You stand at the intersection of the wisdom of God and suffering humanity. But along the way, we do what helps support us, even if it means meeting our demons. So, thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a moment.